Walk on over to Walter's Winter Wonderland and make your enchant evening truly enchanting. Since 2019, Walter's has transitioned itself from a great neighborhood gathering place to a holiday explosion. For larger groups, email jeremy at waltersdc.com. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. trade that had been rumored for about 24 hours, kind of very on the last like five, six hours where we thought it was in physical review, is complete. Juan Soto has been traded to the Yankees along with Trent Grisham. Free runner at second for the Reds. Hunter Harvey stays in the game to pitch in the 10th inning. And Nick Senzel will lead off for the Reds after that great catch against the right field fence in the ninth. 3-3 the score. 10th inning, Reds and Nationals. Once again, here's Dave Jackman. Thank you, Charlie. With that free runner, the only good news, not one of their speed burners at second is Stevenson, is the free runner. Senzel 0 for 3, right-handed batter. The pitch from Harvey is blasted to left field. Back Dickerson to the warning track. He's at the wall, and it is gone. First pitch in the 10th inning, a two-run homer, and it's 5-3 Cincinnati. Senzel saves the game in the bottom of the ninth and puts them ahead in the top of the 10th. And welcome to Nats Chat for Friday, December 8, 2023. Along with MassInSports.com, Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman was back at his uh, Nats Chat podcast home base off having been in Nashville for the just-concluded MLB winter meetings. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. I'm at my Nats Chat podcast home base. The Nats Chat podcast has multiple home bases. We're like Amazon. You know, there's an HQ1, HQ2, etc. And it is good to have you with us because we ended up having some Nats news on the final day of the winter meetings and then in the overnight hours after the winter meetings, Wednesday night into Thursday morning, the breaking news of the Nats agreeing on a contract with free agent, outfielder slash infielder Nick Senzel. This is two ex-Nats were in the news late night, Wednesday night into Thursday morning. We had free agent third baseman Jamer Candelario agreeing on a contract with the Reds. And, uh, oh, by the way, we had outfielder Juan Soto being traded for a second time in 17 months. Mark, the winter meetings technically ended on Wednesday. So we have to establish this. Are all of these things that happened Wednesday night into Thursday morning technically things that happened at the winter meetings or after the winter meetings? How do we properly categorize everything that happened in the overnight hours Wednesday into Thursday? Let's put it on the Mark Zuckerman calendar. I had already left Nashville before any of this stuff went down. So in my mind, that means it happened too late and happened after the fact. 
I do know that Mike Rizzo and some members of the Nationals organization were still there and flew out on Thursday morning. So, you know, I know they met with Scott Boris, who represents Nick Senzel, on Wednesday evening. So I think that's probably when that one all went down and then it got out late at night. Weird times, but I feel like this happens all the time. You spend the majority of time at the winter meeting saying, why haven't they done anything yet? You know, oh, it's so slow, nothing happens. And then a day or two later, it all breaks. I think it happened last year with Trevor Williams as well. And I think what it tells you is the winter meetings are usually used as a time for GMs and agents and other people in the sport to get together and work on stuff. But there's no reason they have to get it done while they're there. They lay the groundwork for it. And very often, a few days or even weeks later, it all happens. So for people who are saying they left Nashville without anything of consequence, well, hang on. We don't evaluate what they've done this offseason until the offseason is over. Well, and it is appropriate that the uh, first free agent signing of significance for the Nats this offseason off of winter meetings in Nashville is of a guy who went to the University of Tennessee, uh, Nick Senzel, is on board here with the Nats. So like we said, overnight hours, Wednesday into Thursday, the news breaks, uh, the contract, a one-year, $2 million deal. So Nick Senzel, he's a guy who has not worked out. Uh, He's going into his age 29 season. The Reds, this past November, non-tendered Nick Senzel. That's why he was a free agent. The Reds took Senzel with the number two overall pick in the 2016 MLB draft out of the University of Tennessee. And he just has not panned out. I mean, the numbers are not pretty. Five major league seasons with the Reds, OPS over that time of just 671, OPS plus over that time of just 77. And that's over 1,366 regular season plate appearances. So the sample size is not tiny. But Nick Senzel does offer positional versatility. He over his five major league seasons with the Reds played all three outfield spots, third base and second base. And, you know, it's a low cost upside move. So there's nothing wrong with making it. But given that positional versatility, given what he has done as a major leaguer, what do you think the Nats are thinking with how Nick Senzel fits in? So when I first heard the news, when I got up early Thursday morning, I immediately looked at all the positions that he plays and said, okay, well, that makes some sense because you could argue they could use some help at all those places, left field, center field, third base, second base. So maybe they would view him as some kind of super utility guy who could bounce around you know, wherever they need on a, a given day. And then later on, I was told that they really are viewing him as a third baseman primarily. They feel that his moving around in Cincinnati might have been a problem and maybe led to some of the issues that he had, that he's better off sticking in one place. And he originally was an infielder who then moved to the outfield because of the Reds' needs at the time. So I think what we're looking at here is not everyday third baseman, their primary third baseman for now. And I think this is key, and I think this is something that we talked about coming into the winter, and it's going to be an issue throughout the entire offseason. They need to field the best team they think they can for 2024, but they also know they have this crop of prospects arriving at some point. And Mike Rizzo said it multiple times this week in Nashville, he's not going to block any of them. So Nick Senzel at third base is a short-term solution, ideally until Brady House is ready at some point in the 2024 season. Now, if Senzel's great, they can find other ways to do that. Maybe they do move him around or maybe House isn't ready when they think that he might be ready. But I thought that was kind of notable, especially when you compare that to Jamer Candelario, who only minutes before the Senzel news was announced, agreed to a deal, three-year, $45 million deal with the Reds. Candelario, in theory, would have been blocking house, although you could also move him to first base or DH. So 
to me, the signal here is this is a short-term, low-cost, just help us get through because we don't have a third baseman right now until the kid is ready. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to ignore the coincidence of the Candelario news breaks late night, Wednesday night, and then the Nick Senzel news broke later Wednesday night, like in the overnight hours, like literally like one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, whenever the heck it was, we learned that uh, the Nats were getting Nick Senzel. I mean, this would seem to suggest that the Nats feel like Brady House is coming soon, because if you're going into a season with this guy, Senzel, as your third base plan, like I said, I mean, he has not been a very good major leaguer. You know, you don't want to be trying to make do with Nick Senzel as your top third baseman for very long, I would think. Like, the idea probably is, you know, you tread water with him, hopefully, for a little bit, and then you get Brady House hopefully up sooner rather than later. This would also seem to be another indication that uh, there just isn't a, a ton of confidence in Carter Keboom at this point either. But when it comes to Candelario, so, you know, his name had come up a bunch with the Nets, right? He gets a three-year, $45 million contract about what had been expected. So ultimately, were the Nats in on Candelario? Do we know? Yeah, I do believe and I, I know that they were interested in him and he was interested in coming back and that there were some discussions. I don't know how far they were willing to go. I would guess this is evidence they were not willing to go three for 45. Now, I don't know how far, how close to that they would have gotten. They wouldn't have gone that far. And I, you know, I think I've said it on, on our previous shows that I think there was a case there that, yes, you have Brady House coming up. But there is or would have been the ability to move Candelario across the diamond to first base or eventually to DH and that he would be a guy who could be helpful to you, not just in the short term, but could actually be a, a key piece of a team that's ready to win a year or two from now. And I think deep down, they probably felt that way, but ultimately weren't willing to make that commitment or weren't given the funds to make that commitment. I don't know that answer for sure. I know Everything that Mike Rizzo has said, and that even Mark Lerner very vaguely has said, is that if they believe that somebody is worth spending money on for a long-term deal, they have the ability to do that right now. Well, we haven't seen the evidence that actually happening. So I want to say here for the record, though, and you know, we'll check back in three years when we're still doing the podcast, that I would have given Jamer Candelario three years for $45 million as the Nationals. I would have made that deal. I think that would have been worthwhile. I know... He had a nice bounce back season, but he doesn't have the track record that says he's going to, you know, keep that up for years to come. And I know he's entering his 30s, but I think what he did for them, his comfort level with them, his clubhouse leadership, and his ability to move to another position, I think that would have been a deal worth making. And it'll be fascinating now to see how it plays out for him in Cincinnati. Yeah. I mean, I've said I'm okay with the Nats not doing much of anything in free agency right now, but, you know, it does stand out. There are like no payroll commitments beyond this upcoming season, right? The Corbin deal is done. The Strasburg thing is going to end somehow, some way. And so you look at the contractual commitments beyond 2024, there is like nothing on the books. So, you know, you can afford actually to miss on something like a three-year $45 million deal for Jamer Candelario if in fact that happened, but it might not. I think what's tricky with Candelario is what we talked about on the last episode, which is which Jamer Candelario is the real one, right? Is it the guy from this past season or the guy from the previous season? So we had the Nick Senzel news Wednesday night into Thursday morning. We on Wednesday had the Nats once again making a selection in the major league phase of the Rule 5 draft. The Nats on Wednesday selected infielder Nassim Nunez in the major league phase of the Rule 5 draft. Nassim Nunez is an interesting guy. So he's going into his age 23 season. This is someone who was a highly regarded prospect 
in the Miami Marlins system. And not like five years ago, isn't like now. Nunez was set to enter the 2024 season as the number six prospect in the Marlins farm system for Baseball America, which labeled him as having the best strike zone discipline, being the fastest base runner, being the best defensive infielder, and having the best infield arm among Marlins minor leaguers. Also, for whatever these things are worth, Nunez was named the MVP of the 2023 All-Star Futures game and was named as an Arizona Fall League rising star in 2023. So you have all of these things to say, well, why the heck did the Marlins make this guy available via the Rule 5 draft? Well, the batting for Nassim Nunez beyond the plate discipline is a problem. You look at what he did this past season, 585 plate appearances for the AA Pensacola Blue Wahoos. The slugging percentage was a mere 286. The batting average was a mere 225. Now, the on-base was 341. That plate discipline plays. And like I said, very good defender, very good base runner. But the actual batting is a bit of an issue. But uh, what would you think about this? I thought this was a smart, shrewd pick by the Nats in the Rule 5 draft. Yeah, and I think you have to view this in the context of what this is, the Rule 5 draft. You're not getting an all-around guaranteed prospect who you know and expect to become a big-time big leaguer. These are the ultimate take a shot at somebody and see what happens, and if it doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. Either you can send him back if he doesn't make the team, or even if he does make it through the whole season and you send him down to the minors and then he never fully develops again, no real harm done there other than you know using up a, a spot on your big league roster for a year. When you're in the position the Nationals are in, you do that. And we know for more than a decade, they didn't. They did not draft anybody in this thing from 2011 through 2021. That's because they were trying to win and they didn't feel they could afford a roster spot on somebody who wasn't going to be able to be used the way that you want him to. In this case, things work out. You're going to see Nunez be a pinch runner. He stole 52 bases last year and at a high rate as well, not just like he's running at will and getting thrown out a lot. So good base runner. They describe him as an elite defensive shortstop who can also play second base. Now, I don't see them pulling C.J. Abrams for defense late in the game, but I could see them pulling Luis Garcia for defense late in the game. If you have somebody better than that, and that's what they believe they will have here. Is he going to get a lot of plate appearances? Probably not. But Michael Chavis was on the roster the entire season last year and didn't even get 100 plate appearances. So if this guy takes that spot, that to me is a more useful use of the 26th man on your roster than a veteran who's a good clubhouse guy but really doesn't bring a whole lot to the table on the field. The hit tool is a problem. We, we said that. What's so bizarre, and I don't know of a lot of players that would fit this description, is he draws walks. He has a really good eye at the plate. He just doesn't make good solid contact when he does swing. Is that going to suddenly turn around now he's in another organization? Probably not, but you never know. He's 23 years old. You try to get him through the season. He has some skills that could help you win some games. And then probably you send him back down, let him play at AAA next year. And who knows? Maybe it works out. And even in a worst case scenario, he comes to spring training. He looks overwhelmed. He's got no shot. You send him back to the Marlins. You get half your money back. No harm, no foul. So to me, this is what a Rule 5 pick is supposed to be. The ultimate, take a shot in the dark at somebody and hope it might work out. But you know, deep down, the odds are stacked against it. 
Him profiling very well defensively is in accordance with this mission that the Nats are on to get better defensively. I don't know that that's specifically why he was taken, but it does, you know, fit that motif. I also wonder this, you know, we talked on the last show about what Davey Martinez said the other day about Luis Garcia not guaranteed the second base job. My message to him was, there's no guarantee, you know, in spring training, you got to come and fight for a job. I mean, I think I sent the message to him when we sent them down. Well, Nassim Nunez can play second base. Nick Senzel can play second base. Do you view these guys as competition for Luis Garcia or not really? I know you said Senzel profiling more as a third baseman. Yeah, I don't see it from the outset. I think both of those guys would have to perform at a certain level to force that issue. They're not getting a 23-year-old Rule 5 pick who hasn't been above double A and saying, yeah, you're competing for the starting second baseman job. They may tell him that to motivate him. They may tell all of us that to make it seem like there's something there, but I'd be really surprised by that. Senzel, like I said, the indication I got is they're looking at him at third base. Let's see what else they do. The offseason's still young. They could go get a different third baseman. They could go get a second baseman instead. Maybe Senzel plays third base and does well, but Brady House is ready. He gets called up. Oh, well, hey, if Luis Garcia's struggling, shift Senzel to second base. So I think it gives them options for how they do this. But I wouldn't view either of those moves as specifically putting pressure on Luis Garcia. But it is notable that the two moves they've now made are guys who could see time there if things weren't to go well for Luis Garcia. And then another thing by the Nats over these last few days, uh, the Nats on Wednesday reportedly agreeing on a minor league contract with First baseman slash outfielder Juan Yepes. The 2024 season will be Yepes's age 26 season. Yepes, 339 major league plate appearances with the St. Louis Cardinals. So these last two regular seasons, OPS plus a 97. So about a league average batter for the Cardinals these last two years. He almost certainly is not being viewed as like the guy to be the first baseman for the Nats, but I'm assuming, you know, a depth piece and a guy who has shown that he can hit at least a little bit at the major league level. Right. And, you know, another one that it's worth a very low risk gamble on. It's a minor league contract. Nothing is guaranteed. He has a shot to make the team, but I would guess probably not. Plays first base in the outfield. The biggest issue to me is that he's right-handed and they keep saying they want left-handed power and they've yet to do that. All these guys they picked up bat right-handed. I view this as kind of like this year's Matt Adams. He comes to camp. Maybe there's a chance. He's got some big league experience. Maybe depending on how things shake out and whoever else you have, he's got a chance to try to make the team. And if he doesn't, he goes to AAA and he's probably your first baseman or corner outfielder there and a guy that you could call upon because of his experience. But I think this is a secondary, even tertiary kind of move. This is a depth move. It's not certainly not them saying, yes, this guy's our first baseman moving into next year. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi to tell you about Window Nation. Winter is coming. The air is getting colder. Energy prices continue to be quite high. Take advantage of the terrific offer that Window Nation is extending to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. 0% interest for five years and 50% off all styles of windows. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Window Nation windows are the best and Window Nation windows will upgrade the feel and look of your home all while lowering your energy costs. Window Nation is the best. Take advantage of the offer that Window Nation has right now. If only the Nats could get such an offer on free agents at the winter meetings. Zero percent interest for 
five years and 50% off all styles of windows. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Base is loaded. One ball, one strike. Hater the set, the kick, here it comes. Swing and a line drive, base hit right field. Taylor scores from third. Stevenson around third. The ball missed in right field. Rounding third. Coming home is Rendon. He will score, but now caught in a run down is Soto. He will be tagged out by Moustakis, but that's the third out. Three runs, score on the play. A base hit to drive in, two runs. All right, so the big news, really not just regarding the Nats, but regarding Major League Baseball, until Shohei Otani picks his team, but the Juan Soto trade. This is something, there are so many levels to this from a Nationals perspective. So the news late night on Wednesday night, the Yankees announcing the acquisition of Juan Soto and fellow outfielder Trent Grisham 
from the San Diego Padres for five players. How about the irony slash poetry of that? Juan Soto and Trent Grisham included in the same trade package, given what happened in the wildcard game October 1st, 2019. But, you know, there are like almost too many storylines with this, just from like our purposes, right? I mean, you start, I guess, with the Soto Grisham thing, just to have some laughs. But second time in 17 months that Juan Soto gets traded, he now has been shipped back across the country to the evil empire on which there is pressure to win. I mean, the Yankees are coming off a very disappointing season by their standards. You think about the kind of damage that Soto could inflict on Yankee Stadium. I mean, he could put up monster numbers this coming season. This finally is the walk year for Juan Soto. So he's going into his free agency beyond this season. And I can think of about 50 other things to get into with this, but I'll leave the floor open for you. And then we can kind of go back and forth here. But what did you think about this? We had heard the rumblings that this was going to happen, but man, I don't know. Now that it has happened, I think it strikes you differently. Like, geez, Soto to the Yankees. It really is remarkable on so many levels. Let's just start with this. On, you know, July 1st, 2022, if either of us had said that Juan Soto would be traded not once, but twice in the next 17 months, what would you have thought? I know that notion had been put out there that maybe the Nats would move him at the trade deadline, even though Mike Rizzo kept saying that wasn't going to happen. But this prior to the news getting out about the $440 million that he turned down, it still seemed like really improbable that the Nats would ever trade him let alone that he would get traded and then get traded again a year and a half later. It is stunning to me that that has how this has transpired. Now, you take it piece by piece and you understand why. And I absolutely think this was the right move by the Padres, as crazy as it sounds. This was a lost cause for them. It's not Juan's fault. He played very well for them. He's basically been the same player that he's always been. But that team underperformed really badly last season. There was all kinds of report of clubhouse chemistry issues. Again, not Soto, other guys, but that he was not happy there. I heard it from multiple people in Nashville this week before the trade even went down, people who are close with him that said he did not enjoy his time there, that both being on the West Coast, but also in that environment with that group of players, that it really did not work out. And so while There's some reluctance on his part, and it's a little bittersweet in his mind that he's now been traded for a second time, which doesn't necessarily look good on the resume. I do think he will fully embrace going to New York, being a Yankee for a year, and then we're still going to spend the next year with all the hoopla of, well, is he going to re-sign with the Yankees? Is he going to be a free agent? Where is he going to end up after all this? It is crazy, and there's a very good chance, probably better than 50% chance, I'm going to say, that when it's all said and done... Juan Soto will have played for four different teams in four years. I mean, what player of that caliber at that stage of his career would you ever say that about? Yeah, this is almost like an NBA thing where an NBA superstar who is perpetually unhappy keeps demanding to be traded. And so he winds up on a bunch of teams in a condensed period of time. But like you just outlined, that's not who Juan Soto is. So like you said, Juan Soto with the Padres did perform certainly as a batter. Soto's OPS plus with the Nats was 159. His OPS plus with the Padres was 151. So he was good. At times I saw people say, well, he hasn't been that good with San Diego. No, he was good as a batter. Now it is worth noting, his defense has cratered. He had a really bad defensive season this past season. He was moved back to left field. His defense really has suffered here. So I don't know if that's now who he is defensively or if circumstances with the Padres were such that his defense just tailed off and now is going to bounce back. But I mean, he had a minus 1.2 defensive war for this past season. So 
the defense is an issue. Now, I think with the Padres now, okay, so with the Padres, there's a lot going on. There's their RSN situation. They've been told to cut budget, to cut payroll. I think the Padres, though, are a fascinating case study in record versus run differential. They had this bad season, quote unquote, right? And they did have the behind the scenes issues. So I'm certainly not going to be dismissive of those. But take a listen to this. The Padres this past regular season, 82 and 80, disappointing record, and yet a run differential of plus 104. The two things so clearly did not match up. The Padres this past season had a woeful record in one-run games, 9-23, and 23, had a woeful record in extra inning games, 2-12. and 12. I think there's a very compelling case for the Padres of just run it back, <laughs> you know? Just take the same band of married men and run them back this coming season because the actual performance on the field was not reflected by the record. Now, Clubhouse issues, yes. So perhaps you can't run it back. But just from purely like an analytical perspective, the Padres to me are so interesting because they were not as bad as that record ended up suggesting. Do you think any part of Juan Soto regrets the big time financial demands that his agent has made? Because that really has resulted in him being traded twice, right? Like you're not dealing Juan Soto every 17 months if you know that it's not going to cost you $400, $500 billion to re-sign him. Do you think there's any part of Soto that maybe wishes that his agent had not been uh, who his agent is, Scott Boris, and being like so boisterous about what Juan Soto ultimately is going to command? I do. You know, only Juan Soto truly knows what's inside his own head. But you talk to enough people around the game, people who are friends with him and know him, and just seeing his reaction from that day forward, when the news got out a couple years ago, and a few of us were there in the clubhouse with him as that got out, seeing the look in his eye and then seeing the next several weeks as everything played out, and then what happened once he went to San Diego. I've got to feel that deep down, at the minimum, he's saying to himself, how did it get to this point? And what could I have done differently? Now, if the news is never leaked out, and we still don't know where that ever came from originally, maybe that changes it somewhat, and maybe they don't trade him, or maybe there's, even if they did trade him, you would never really know exactly how that worked out. So I know he was hurt by that part being put out there, but we don't know what he's going to get as a free agent next winter. Maybe it will be more. Maybe in the end, financially, it will have made sense, but maybe it won't be. And even if it is more, what has all of this done to his public image? I know that Juan Soto is somebody who does care about how he's viewed publicly and by fans. And, you know, in San Diego, he wasn't beloved. Now, again, he played great. But he didn't necessarily play with that enthusiasm and smile that we knew from him here. Now, he's gotten older, he's a different situation, a lot of reasons for all that. But it was pretty easy to tell from the body language that he was not happy there for whatever reason, in a way that he certainly was happy in DC. And I'll be honest, I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of people, myself included, at least hold out this possibility in our minds that a year from now, maybe he would want to come back to DC. Again, depends on what the offer is for him. He's not just going to accept anything. But if it doesn't go well for him in New York, for whatever reason, and now he finally has the chance to decide for himself, where does he want to play? Where does he want to spend the rest of his career? I do wonder if Washington would be on his shortlist. I would not be surprised if it was. Now, a lot of things have to happen between now and then. And that's not to say the Nats would come back and who knows what they would offer. And you know, if Dylan Cruz and James Wood are studs at the end of the year, they may even say, Hey, that's not money well spent on our part. We've got that taken care of. But I do think it's pretty clear that this has not played out the way 
that Juan Soto ever wanted it to play out. Some of it, it was out of his control. But yeah, if he had taken that offer or said, well, hang on, I think you're in the ballpark here. Let, let's figure something out that might work ultimately. I think it changes the narrative completely. And he might be in a much better place mentally and emotionally right now, in addition to still being a fantastic ball player. Yeah, I still wonder if the learners really wanted to strike a deal with Soto. I, I still wonder about that. I mean, if, if you go back and you look at the history of the offers, they just they always seem to be a day late and a dollar short. And it seemed to be that classic thing that teams will do, make no mistake, of they offer just enough to come off respectable, but not enough for you to say yes, because they don't want you to say yes. You know, it's like, hey, let's hang out next week. Oh, I can't that day, but we'll try another day sometime. You know, it's like you don't really want the deal to get done. I do wonder about that. And I think that's going to be maybe the biggest question regarding this next offseason, Soto hitting free agency if the Nats are contenders, are the learners willing to ante up? And like you said, should they? Because there's an argument to be made that they shouldn't. I mean, what we've seen with Soto, I think, is indicative of the smartening up of Major League Baseball. This recognition of one guy, even as great as Soto, can only do so much. And so, you know, you can't just say, well, you got to keep him because he's so good. It's like, no, in baseball, one guy can't elevate you beyond a certain point. And so you are better off parlaying that guy into multiple players and hoping for the best in that regard. Now, something that has come up quite a bit off Soto being traded again is, well, this means that the Nats won the trade with the Padres. What happened on August 2nd, 2022, the Nats turning Juan Soto and Josh Bell into six players, including five prospects. This means that the Nats won the trade. I think that's still too to be determined. I think how these prospects pan out is what's going to determine whether the Nats won that trade. Because if the guys who the Padres got back from the Yankees for Soto end up being good, it still could end up being that the Padres won the trade. And the Padres did make an NLCS. It's not like they did nothing with Juan Soto. So we got to see what happens with the likes of Mackenzie Gore and CJ Abrams and James Wood and Harleen Susana, et cetera. But where are you on that? The idea that this further moves the needle of the Nats having won that trade. Yeah, no, we're not there yet and you can't be there yet. With any trade, especially one of this magnitude, you really don't know the answer for a long time. Now, I think it's easy to say, I think it's okay to say at this point that you believe the Nats did the right thing in the moment given the circumstances. And I think it's okay to say that at the moment, the Padres didn't win the trade. Now, maybe those prospects they got from the Yankees turn out to be good, but let's be clear, the haul they got does not come anywhere close to matching what the Nationals got. Yes, they could still turn out to be decent. The pitcher King looks like he's pretty good and another one of the prospects is pretty good. But I mean, the Nats got like four truly top prospects plus a, a flyer on a young guy who throws 100 miles an hour in Susana plus Luke Voigt, who was the throw-in, of course. That is a huge package and probably the best that's ever been put together in a baseball trade. And so even if they don't all pan out, if C.J. Abrams is a legitimate big league shortstop for years, if Mackenzie Gore is a frontline starter, and if James Wood is an everyday outfielder, I mean, that alone would suggest that the Nationals made out well. But the point that we made back then, and I'll continue to make till the end of time, is there was still a way for the Nationals to keep Juan Soto and have good young players. The reason they got into that position was of their own doing by failing to develop their own prospects over time. When it got to the point that they said, the only chance we think we have to rebuild a farm system and be competitive again is to trade our best chip, that's what they did. And in the moment, that was the right move. But everything that led up to it was of their own doing. It was not an either or situation. There was a way 
for them to keep Juan Soto and have a good farm system and continue to win. Yeah, there has been this rewriting of history by some that I got to tell you drives me nuts when I see it, which is like, oh, Mike Rizzo, what a brilliant move that he made in trading Juan Soto. This was, you know, a masterclass in how you handle a situation like that. And, and you can praise Mike Rizzo for the trade, but you have to understand the context as you just laid out and as we have talked about so many times on this podcast. And had the Nats done a better job of drafting and developing, they may not have traded Soto. Like the Soto trade was like your get out of jail free card in terms of revamping a farm system that was basically barren at that point. So, you know, I think there are only so many bouquets you can throw at Rizzo for making that trade, but it may work out, you know, and hopefully it does. And and, and it just might. So one other point I wanted to make earlier, you were talking about Soto and and free agency and how much, and was it a legit offer and all that. I go back to Bryce Harper, and I think we all felt like at the time the Nats made a good but not a great offer for him, maybe hoping he would turn it down and leave. And we all knew all along that Bryce Harper and Scott Boris wanted to set records with that deal. Well, he did set a record. At the time, it was the largest total value contract, but year to year, it was not. And I think we've all figured out over time that that process did not play out the way Bryce Harper hoped that it would. He wanted more teams involved. I still believe he preferred other places to Philadelphia. Now, he wound up getting a a ton of money, although fewer dollars per year than a whole lot of other star players got. And yes, he won an MVP and he went to the World Series with them and he may end up going to the Hall of Fame as a Philly. But the process that led him there was not what he was intending for it to be. So, As much as we think we know how these things are going to go, they don't always go that way. And if I'm Juan Soto, I'm a little bit nervous that a year from now, it may not be as much of a, hey, you've got your pick anywhere you want to go for as much money as you can possibly ask for. It may not be as simple as that. Yeah. And the Harper contract got surpassed like days later by the Mike Trout contract. So that record that uh, Harper and Boris were trying to set did not end up lasting for very long. I think the Juan Soto free agency is going to be impacted by what the Shohei Otani contract ends up being. I mean, you still have people talking about $500, $600 million for Shohei Otani. I don't know, man. I mean, Tommy John surgery, you know, is he going to be a pitcher moving forward? You know, but with Otani, of course, there is the economic impact of if you sign him, that opens up Japan for you as a team in terms of merchandise and television. And so maybe that by itself can help to pay for the contract. So the point would be, I mean, if Otani gets $500, $600 million, then you would think that that's going to only raise the bar for Soto next offseason. But we'll see. You know, nothing is for sure with this stuff. Hey, are you a law firm partner or an associate stuck on an underperforming franchise? Do what Nationals legend Max Scherzer did. Demand a trade. He left the New York Mets, right? And uh, ended up on a contender in the American League. There might be greener pastures and a lot more money at another law firm for you and your team at another law firm, not to mention better management and better services to offer your clients. The law firm lateral partner market is still red hot, and Nats Chat sponsor Mason Kalfas is the best legal recruiter in Washington, D.C., or anywhere. And Mason wants to help you find a new and better home. Mason Kalfas, he is the Scott Boris of legal recruiters. Put him to work for you. Mason will sit down with you and understand your practice and career or financial goals. He will confidentially discuss your candidacy with law firms that are contenders, not 60 win teams. You can reach Mason or any of his team of seven recruiters at 202 486 
888-253-3535 or email Mason at Mason at ZenithLegal.com. That's 202-486-3535 or via email at Mason at ZenithLegal.com. Go Nats! Uh, The Nats will be contenders very soon and you can be a contender even sooner. On a 3-1 pitch, Dylan Cruz rips a base hit to right center field, and the Freddies are pouring it out in the first. Two more in, two more ribbies for Cruz. It is 7-0 Fredericksburg. Well, winter meetings are done, but there's still a lot of the offseason to go. We know what the positional needs of the Nats, and I, I sort of put positional needs almost in quotation marks, because again, like we're all just kind of waiting for the prospects, right? But what's on your radar in terms of what might be next for the Nats? I do think there's more coming. I wouldn't be surprised if there's at least one more move before the holidays, and then maybe they wait until January to do something else. They clearly need a left fielder. They clearly want some left-handed power, whether that's in left field or at first base or at DH. So I'm looking for some things there. I know in Nashville, they were at least engaged in some discussions with guys like Joey Gallo. I do think that the Senzel move and the lack of signing Candelario for what he got does suggest to me that this is going to be kind of similar to last winter in that they probably aren't going to go multiple years, maybe two years at most on somebody, but that these are going to be short term and you know potentially under $10 million a player kind of thing. I mean, they, they made three of those kind of moves last year, Candelario, Dom Smith, Corey Dickerson. One of the three worked out really well. The other two did not work out well at all. Senzel fits into that Dom Smith, Corey Dickerson kind of signing. Who knows if it does better, but I feel like that's again the way they're going to be going. And I do think they're going to pursue a starting pitcher. It's going to cost more if they want somebody of actual value to them. I mean, you look at the guys who just signed like Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson, they're getting 10, 12 million dollars a year. These guys are no better than Patrick Corbin or Trevor Williams. So if they think that they're going to improve their rotation, even with just you know classic innings eater, they're going to have to spend more than that to get a better pitcher, and they may not find that out there, and they may ultimately decide that they're better off with what they have. But I do think they're going to pursue that. So I, I think there's more to come. I got so many tweets at me over the week like, oh, winter meetings are over. They didn't do anything. It's a failure. It's like, hang on. <laughs> if you look at the calendar, we're halfway through the off season now, and really the first month plus of it doesn't count because nothing happens during that time. There's a whole lot of time left. There's a whole lot of players left. You cannot evaluate what a team does until you get to the end of the offseason and sometimes even into spring training when there are players left. So I'm not going to jump the gun too much here on what they've done, but I do expect more. Absolutely. Well, and if you know your Nats history, and I know many people listening do, Christmas time traditionally is a time during which the Nats do do something. The Gio Gonzalez trade, the Josh Bell trade, the Daniel Murphy signing, all of those things happened uh, right around Christmas. So maybe Santa will be bringing us some big Nats news in the coming weeks. So who the heck knows? You tell us what you think. Hit us up on X at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show to Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on our website as well, Nats chat podcast.com. Thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Visit timnewmark.com. We are with you sporadically throughout the Nationals offseason. So as news warrants uh, and uh, as time uh, goes on, we will be back with you to talk Nationals. And like Mark said, more is coming. We just don't know what and uh, we don't know when. But for more, I'm Al Galdi. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Big lead. There he goes. Huge jump. 
The pitch a strike to throw on down and the tag. Safe is the call. Albies taking the throw. Again falling down with contact on the tag with Abrams. And that's stolen base number 47 and 46 here today for C.J. Abrams. And he's set a new single season record for stolen bases for a national since they moved from Montreal to become the Nationals in 2005. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.